Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Germany in Focus, where we spotlight some big news stories and talking points across the country. Today we're talking about why a landlord in Munich is being punished for charging too little in rent. We'll have a chat about the Deutschland ticket, that's the new public transport offer in Germany. We're going to discuss why November the 9th is such an important date in German history. And I spoke to historian and author Katja Hoyer about the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, what it meant for East Germans and Germany today. We're also going to talk about the demonstrations against the government's energy policies that we've been seeing And stick around until the end when we discuss why people in Germany will be carrying lanterns around and possibly eating goose this week. Last but not least, we're also talking carnival season. I'm your host, Rachel Loxton, and once again, I'm here in Berlin with two of our regular panelists, Imogen Goodman and Aaron Burnett. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Are you both well? Definitely. Great. Let's firstly talk about the date that we are recording this episode on. It's November the 9th, a very significant date in German history. Aaron, why is that? Well, when you ask what happened in Germany on November 9th, Rachel, in some ways it feels more accurate to ask, well, what didn't happen on November 9th in Germany? The state is associated with both this country's happiest days and some of the darkest chapters of its history at the same time. Speaking to my own Oma and many German Canadians growing up who remember the fall of the wall, uh, November 9th marked the hope of a reunified Germany. For some of them, seeing family and friends they had not seen in years who were living behind the wall, ringing bells, crying while watching their television screens as people took sledgehammers to the wall. I heard it described by my German teacher in Canada at the time as the happiest day in German history. And and that was 33 years ago. Yeah, yeah, today, yeah. But if we go back a little further, though, we have November 9th, 1938, or Kristallnacht, which is the night of broken glass. And that saw Jewish-owned businesses and synagogues violently targeted uh, with the blessing of the ruling Nazis at the time. Around 90 people died. Others were deported and sent to camps. So amongst the Berlin Wall commemorations, many people spend today laying flowers at and polishing Stolpersteine. And these are small brass plaques that are put in the place of cobblestones uh, outside the homes of Jews who were taken and deported. Earlier this year, I actually uh, went to one of these ceremonies in a town just outside of Berlin where one of these was laid. It brought out uh, probably half the town. Uh, and everyone really took in the occasion as a, as a very solemn commemoration. It was actually quite moving. Really nice. I really love the Stolpersteine, the stumbling stones, as well as memorials. I think they're really effective because they have the names of Holocaust victims and it says what happened to them. And of course, they're outside where they used to live. What else happened on November the 9th? Well, 15 years earlier, on November 9th, 1923, we saw the Munich Beer Hall Putsch or the attempt 
attempted coup by Hitler, which started in a Munich beer hall, after which he was arrested and he wrote Mein Kampf while he was in jail, which formed the basis of a lot of Nazi ideology later on. On November 9th, 1918, Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated and immediate political instability ensued. We saw two separate declarations of the Weimar Republic right after his abdication, and that really was just a sign of the instability that was about to come. So all in all, a very momentous day. Yeah, and I guess that's why it's called the Day of Fate in Germany. And we'll talk a bit more about the Berlin Wall fall and what it was like living in East Germany later in the episode. Munich is known for lots of things, like the Englischer Garten, its football team, culture, and of course, Oktoberfest. It's also very well known for having some of the highest rents in Germany. So that's why this story is a very curious one. Basically, a landlord in Munich is being fined for not charging enough for rent. Imogen, can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, this is actually quite an incredible story. We're very, very used to hearing about illegally high rents in major German cities, but it's pretty rare to hear about someone being punished for charging too little. For quite a few years now, Munich has been the most expensive place to rent in Germany. If you want to rent a flat there these days, you can expect to pay around 21 euros per square meter on average, which works out at more than a grand for a 50 square meter apartment. So one Munich landlord named Tadeus Spiegel basically decided to go against the grain entirely, and he's been charging well under the market rate. He actually has quite a few properties in the Sendling area, which is not too far from where Oktoberfest is held and is in a pretty central area. Uh, these flats were all rented out at a maximum of €13.50 per square metre, so well under what people would normally pay. Um, And now the Finance Amt, or Tax Office, has found out about it and is basically asking him to pay more than €41,000 in back taxes. That is so weird. Uh, Why would he actually get into trouble, though, for charging too little? Well, that's a really good question, and it basically all relates back to a quirk of the German tax system. So landlords in Germany are required to charge at least 66% of the market rent in their area, which is usually based on what's known as the Mietspiegel or Comparative Rent Index. If they don't do that, they could actually be on the hook for tax avoidance because the finance amp might think they're deliberately lowering their rents in order to drive their tax burden down. There's also a bit of an issue with the kinds of things that you can write off as a landlord, so things like maintenance, repairs, that kind of thing. If a landlord only charges half of the market rent, the tax office only recognises half of these expenses. So that's basically an incentive to charge more. Unfortunately, this could be one of the factors that's actually driving up rents in major cities right now. Uh, There are a fair few landlords in places like Berlin and Munich that have refused to hike their rents in recent years. So we can probably expect to hear about more cases like this in future. Interesting. And you used to live in Munich, Imogen, a a while ago. What was your experience of rents? Well, I was actually incredibly lucky when I lived there because I didn't have to rely on the private market. I was actually studying at a language school there. Uh, so they had a number of properties. The first time around, which is around 2008, I think, I actually ended up in a uh, Catholic girls hostel. But the amazing thing about that is that it was incredibly cheap and it was not too far from the centre at all, right in the heart of the Altstadt. The second time around, I also got incredibly lucky. Uh, I had a studio flat, which cost me around 300 euros a month. Yes. And that was actually 
just five minutes away from where Oktoberfest is held. So pretty great location. Really great deals. And you were there recently, right? How do you think things have changed? Oh, massively. Um, Yeah, I was there in September with my parents on a lovely holiday in Bavaria. And we actually ended up in the same area that I was was living in. So right near where Oktoberfest is held, really close to the center. Unfortunately, I spoke to um, a business owner about this. And he basically said that it's now near impossible to find people to work in his shop. Uh, That's because it's a minimum wage job. And people on minimum wage basically just can't afford to live in the center of Munich anymore. They're usually based way out in the sticks. And if you think about it, commuting 45 minutes for a minimum wage job just doesn't feel worth it. It really doesn't work out. Mm, I can imagine. So Munich is regularly at the top of the league when it comes to high rents in Germany. And you've just said this, this is what's been happening there. What else is happening across Germany with rent developments? Yeah, it's definitely still the case that Munich is uh, the most expensive place to rent in Germany, but it is definitely not the only city where rents are high at the moment. Uh, so the real estate portal ImmoScout24 regularly tracks the developments in rents across Germany. And this year, they've seen pretty pretty significant hikes in asking rents, especially in the major cities. So just between spring and summer this year, rents in Hamburg actually went up by around 5% on average, which means a flat there will now set you back more than 12 euros per square meter for the first time ever. Cologne rents also went up by around 4% over that period, which means properties there are around 11 euros 60 per square meter. And in Berlin, where rents have just been soaring lately, they've also recently broken the 11 euro per square meter mark for the first time in history. This actually has a lot to do with the fact that demand for rental properties is so high right now. Immoscout apparently saw a 50% uptick in demand over summer, and they actually say it's not rare to have hundreds of inquiries about a single ad in Berlin. If you are offering an apartment in Berlin, you will be one of the most popular people anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And having looked for a Berlin apartment a number of times, I can definitely see that there's so much demand out there. And rising rents, they they are a really tricky issue. How have authorities tried to deal with spiraling rents, Aaron? Well, so far, government relief efforts for the cost of living crisis and inflation at the moment have focused on getting money into people's pockets to help alleviate utility costs, what we call Nebenkosten. So these are really through direct energy transfers from the government. We've not seen much action, though, to deal with the price of rent itself. We did see a much-talked-about rent cap in Berlin for a period of time, the so-called Mietendeckel. In February 2020, Berlin froze rents at June 2019 levels and wanted that to go until 2025, after which landlords would only then have been allowed to raise rents by just over a percent a year uh, in line with inflation back in the days when inflation was at that level. Uh, Those were the days. In April 2021, though, the federal constitutional court said Berlin couldn't do something like this. Only the federal government had the power to do that, and they struck down the meat and deckel. And that's created a precedent, and the federal government certainly hasn't been talking about a nationwide rent cap in any way. We do see some meat price bremsen in various places in the country, so rental breaks. But usually with those... The onus is then on the tenant to challenge the landlord, which 
can be quite challenging given the tenant's position. Yeah, this is a really tricky issue, basically, um, particularly for expats and people who aren't fluent in German. You know, the it's intimidating enough to challenge a landlord, um, even as a native speaker, but try going through sort of legal documents in legal German um, as a foreigner. It's not the easiest thing in the world. And I think people really need to contact their housing rental associations if they think that they're being overcharged. Yeah, they're meat for Absolutely. I agree. Thank you very much, both of you. The German government and state leaders have finally agreed on a funding plan for the new Deutschland ticket, 49 euro monthly card that will mean people can use local public transport, that's buses, trams, the U-Bahn and regional trains across local networks in Germany. Aaron, this seems like really good news. Can you give us more details? Well, it's basically much the same as the summer's 9 euro ticket, but it's more expensive, 49 <laughs> 49 euros a month. Uh, You have access to the same modes of local and regional transport around Germany, and your ticket covers it. What is excluded? Intercity and intercity express trains. So you can take trips around the country, but it might take a while unless you are willing to shell out the extra money for an ICE. And what's the reaction to it so far? Well, we do have some civil society organizations, particularly environmental ones, who say this ticket is too expensive and they want to see a 365 euro per year ticket, so a euro a day, to help increase the incentive to use public transport. Berlin is continuing with some of its own plans. Ultimately, though, I currently have a monthly subscription that costs me 63 euros a month, and it only applies to the inner limits of Berlin. So some of these concerns are about getting people to use public transport that currently don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many users who already do will be saving a good amount of money. Yeah, sounds great. And when will we be able to get the ticket, Imogen? Well, that's still pretty unclear at the moment, uh, but it should be in the early months of next year. So Transport Minister Volker Wissing um, is really, really keen to roll this out by January 1st. But the transport companies and federal states are a little less optimistic. Um, They're basically saying that March is probably a more realistic deadline because there are quite a few technical challenges to overcome by then. Great, because they're trying to make it digital, aren't they? Absolutely. One of the major things about this ticket is that it's going to be entirely digitalized. And that is a great idea. We're in a modern world, or (laughs) maybe not in Germany. (laughs) 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 But but, but we're trying. We're getting there. Um, We appreciate the effort appreciate the German government. The vision. And essentially what that means is that um, there are quite a few technical challenges with this. We could potentially even see maybe a paper ticket, maybe a sort of slightly old analog system for a few months just until they get used to simplifying the tariff system and uh, coordinating all of that across the federal states. Of course. And it's it's still okay to have a paper ticket. We don't want to yeah. completely get yeah. rid of it. I like the paper <laughs> ticket. <laughs> and the city of Berlin has also agreed to extend its 29 euro ticket and also has a special offer for certain groups of people. Imogen, can you give us a few more details about that? Yeah, well, uh, Berlin, as you say, has basically gone its own way uh, with its own budget ticket offer, uh, which basically provides unlimited travel in zones A and B for €29 per month. This was originally intended to be a kind of bridging measure to tide people over until the new national ticket was introduced in January. Obviously, it's now not clear if that's going to happen. So the €29 ticket has 
been extended until the end of March. They're also planning to roll out a special offer for people who receive different types of social benefits, things like housing support, uh, Hartsphere or Job Seekers Allowance. That will actually cost just €9 per month and will be available from January to March next year. Great. And we will include our explainers on these stories in the show notes so you can find out more details. Our Germany in Focus podcast is free to listen to, but it's only made possible by readers becoming members of the local Germany. So if you're not yet a member, you can support us by heading to the local.de and subscribing with the reduced rate for podcast listeners at the local.de forward slash podcast offer. With rising inflation and energy costs, a number of protests have been happening in Germany, with many of them taking place on Mondays. But there are mixed messages about what people are protesting about. Some are concerned about the rising cost of living, wages not going up, while some people are unhappy about Germany's stance on Russia and the government's energy policy. And there also seems to be some anti-COVID protesters too. Aaron, I know this is a difficult question to answer, but what is going on? A lot, (laughs) really. (laughs) We are seeing protests happening all around Germany. Uh, Sometimes they come in the form of strikes, for example. Uh, In eastern Germany in particular, we are seeing uh, protests, uh, organized protests, particularly on Monday evenings. And these protests are really focused on spiraling inflation and cost of living. Some protesters say all of the government spending simply isn't enough to provide enough relief from rising costs, despite that spending being the hundreds of billions of euros. Some want Nord Stream 2, the now closed pipeline with Russia, to be reopened. This is a particular focus in protests in eastern Germany. Remember, of course, that eastern Germany was indeed supposed to be the endpoint for Nord Stream 2. So when it was cancelled, there were a lot of jobs that simply didn't materialize in the area. There are still COVID protesters uh, who say COVID is a way for the government to control people and that any restrictions interfere with people's lives and the economy as a whole. And as you mentioned, a lot of these protests are taking place in, in the former East German states. What can you tell us about that? Well, if we look at the numbers, uh, we begin to understand uh, a few of the reasons why Eastern Germans are, on the whole, more exposed to economic shocks. The average Eastern German makes only about uh, 70% to three quarters of what the average Western German makes uh, in salary. They also have less functional public transport a lot of the time and even fewer health services uh, available. Uh, The household budget crunches are simply harder to weather when you make a lower salary on average. But people in Eastern Germany also tend to have a more sympathetic view of Russia, partly due to history. They're less likely to blame Putin for economic fallouts, even though the German government and others warned him what would happen if he invaded Ukraine, and he did so anyway. And we heard earlier in the year from experts in the in the offices which have been set up to protect democracy in Germany that they were concerned about far-right extremists kind of infiltrating legitimate protests. Could this happen? Is this happening? 
Uh, it could. That's certainly the warnings uh, that we've been given. It's hard to police who comes to your protest, especially in Germany, where peaceful protests enjoy a high degree of legal protection. There's always the risk, uh, particularly in Eastern Germany, which is the part of Germany that has the highest level of support for the far-right party, the alternative for Germany uh, in the country, countrywide, that you get far-right elements that will come out. Yeah, and, and going back for a second, is there any reason why many of these protests are taking place on Monday evenings? Monday protests have a long tradition, uh, as particularly in Eastern Germany. Uh, going back about seven years, we saw the Pegida protests uh, on Monday evenings in Dresden in particular, where thousands of people came out to protest uh, immigration. But where it really kicked off, where this tradition really kicked off was all the way back in 1989 with the peaceful Leipzig demonstrations, which happened uh, in October 1989 in the weeks leading up to the Berlin Wall. They drew hundreds of thousands of people in Leipzig in particular, and they happened on Mondays. Interesting. Thank you so much. And this is a good time to hear from historian and author Katja Hoyer, whose forthcoming book, Beyond the Wall, East Germany, 1949 to 1990, comes out in April next year. I asked Katja how the East Germans she spoke to experienced that turbulent time when the Berlin Wall came down and reunification happened. I found interviewing various people about that, that it really depended what position they had in society, who they were, and, and basically how these changes affected them. So some people were, of course, incredibly jubilant about the whole uh, experience, because mostly actually because Germany was split. I think that, that seems to have been the biggest issue. So that the idea that their country, their, their fatherland, as it were, was sort of disunited and, and would now come back together seemed kind of the natural thing for many people to happen. Not at this point. So I think a lot of people were surprised that it happened so quickly. But I think there was certainly a sense of relief there that, that it came back together. But a lot of people were also really concerned about their own personal future um, because they didn't know what was going to happen to their jobs, what was going to happen to their livelihoods and to their entire situation. And this affected a lot of people who directly worked for the state. So people like teachers and soldiers and, and people like that in the sort of public services, if you will. But also a lot of people who had acquired sort of some form of status and identification that was directly linked to what the GDR did. So say, for example, if you were a female, say, worker in a factory or in an engineering context or something like that that had become reasonably normal and then basically you, you would uh, have childcare to look after your children and that seemed to dissipate pretty quickly and then uh, women in particular were sort of hit quite hard by unemployment and, and other problems with the sort of social situation changing so I think it, it depended on who you were how you experienced that time. And how do you think the events of the past, the, the country being split and then coming together, how do they impact the Germany we know today? I think people initially assumed that in 1990 East Germans would just stop being East Germans and join everything that had happened in the last 41 years in West Germany kind of needlessly and seamlessly. And I think that is a bit of a thing that, that we, we're still grappling with is that people actually did develop different lifestyles, different societies to some extent. So like East Germans, for instance, still have their children a lot earlier than West Germans, which leads to completely different sort of generational breaks and, and the way that, you know, you then have younger parents doing parenting in a different way. There's all sorts of kind of social and, and sociological ramifications from that still. And I think there just needs to be a greater understanding, I think, both East and West that 
these experiences were different for 40 years and need to be understood rather than kind of completely rejected or dismissed out of hand or kind of leading to tensions because of the lack of assimilation in the East, um, which I think is often a a perceived problem that stems from, I think, a degree of sort of misunderstanding as to what happened in in 41 years of, of East German history. Absolutely. And Katja, you were born and grew up in East Germany. How do you kind of feel looking back at when the, I guess, when the anniversary of the wall falling and then what has happened since then? Do you have any kind of personal feelings that you would share with us? I was a child when when the wall fell and therefore I haven't sort of grown up with socialism as a thing that sort of shaped me and my life in the same way that older East Germans have. But that that's obviously not to say that everything, all of these kind of impacts just vanished in the 1990s. So I still learned Russian at school, for example, and did it all the way to A-level. And you kind of grow up with the same teachers that, that were teaching beforehand. So none of that suddenly vanished. So to me personally, I feel that it's necessary for Germany to sort of move forward as one country without ignoring this kind of really vital part that affects kind of a significant part of the population. There's there's virtually millions of people, 16 million East Germans when the war fell, who have grown up with those experiences. Their children will still be impacted by what happens. What I'm trying to do is basically do a little bit of my part, if you will, in, in that communication that I think needs to happen still without the anger and the aggravation and the kind of completely dismissive and sometimes even outright arrogant attitude that is kind of levelled at East Germany, I think, to some extent, and then leads to resentment and misunderstanding in East Germany, which in turn causes, you know, sort of political problem or problems on a national level. So I think, yeah, what I was trying to do basically, because I get these kind of misunderstandings a lot living in the UK now as well, but I think the same is true for West Germany as well, that you get a lot of uh, kind of just, yeah, misunderstanding of, of what it was like and the experiences that people have gone through. And the book that I've written is hopefully part of a, of a wider discussion of kind of what that means and, and where East Germany's place is in the, in the overall national history. Yeah, really interesting. And your book, Beyond the Wall, that comes out next April. And I just wondered, what inspired you to write it? You've mentioned that you want to kind of tell the stories and debunk a few myths. Is there anything else that really inspired you to dig deeper into the history and the social history? It hasn't been done, I think, without any kind of ideological angle to it. And this is kind of what I was trying to do. I'm not trying to show that it was a brilliant state, but neither am I trying to completely wipe it out of the German success story since 1949. So I think it just takes an approach that looks at it for what it was and, and tries to sort of take it seriously as a, as a part of that national story. And that's what I'm trying to do with that. But also because I've seen my own teachers struggle with it so much. I mean, I was sitting there in the 90s and, you know, in my schoolroom listening to people who'd been trained as teachers and the GDR and we're now signing us up to do essays like or to write an essay on things like why can't socialism work why is it always you know doomed to fail sort of thing and, and you were just wondering like did you ask virtually the opposite question about 10 years earlier you know you sort of just sat there and watched actual real life people trying to grapple with the questions that we still I think haven't quite come to terms with so how does one talk and discuss and learn about division and, and kind of Germany's experience after the Second World War without going down a route of saying the GDR was either completely evil or like the best thing ever and anybody who says different, I won't listen to them sort of thing. So it's kind of just looking at it issue by issue, seeing what they were trying to do and how it worked and how it didn't work and what the impact was on both people and the country as a whole. So that was sort of my my mission with that. Really great. I can't wait to read it. I think it sounds fascinating. So I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you so much, Katja. Thank you.
We'll be back after this short break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, a little public service announcement. There are a couple of interesting things happening in Germany this week. On Friday, November 11th, when we release this episode, we have Martin's Tag or St. Martin's Day. And this is when you see kids walking about with lanterns on the street and singing. Imogen, what can you tell us about this tradition? So Martin's Tag is basically a celebration, as you say, of St. Martin. Now, he was a Roman soldier who was eventually made a saint, just basically for being an all-round great guy. <laughs> um, there's a really great story of him cutting his cloak in half to share with a beggar during a snowstorm, which is obviously a very lovely thing to do. And it's just one example of one of his pretty good deeds. Though St. Martin's Day is a Catholic holiday, um, most days, including secular Berlin, have actually taken up the tradition of the lantern processions. So if you're out and about on Friday night, you'll probably see lots of little kids walking around holding little paper lanterns, uh, which is such a heartwarming sight, especially on a cold autumn's evening. It's adorable. Um, If you don't have kids or you're not out and about, uh, the other big tradition on St. Martin's Day is eating a massive dinner of goose, dumplings, and red cabbage, which is absolutely delicious. This actually relates to another legend about St. Martin. He was apparently so reluctant to become a bishop that he hid from church officials in a stable full of geese. Obviously, that's not the greatest hiding place in the world. Um, And as you can imagine, the noise of the geese gave him away pretty quickly. Yes. And I've even seen a few restaurants advertising their geese. So you don't (laughs) even have to cook it yourself. Even better. Yeah. (laughs) And also on this day, the carnival season starts. So there are a few events on where carnival is celebrated, especially in the Rhineland. So tens of thousands of people will be going to the Altstadt in Cologne on Friday to celebrate the start of what's known as the fifth season. And it always gets a little wild there, I've heard. And there'll also be some other events around. The season lasts right through until Ash Wednesday next year. And there are more parades and partying around February, March time. Have either of you been to a carnival event in Germany? Not yet. It's on my bucket list. Uh, However, I generally hate dressing up and carnival has a lot of (laughs) dressing up. Also, I have to say cologne beer tends to remind me a little bit of North American beer in that it's quite weak. Sorry, cologne. 
Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I'm lovely city though. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to I'd have to bring my own beer, possibly a strong Altbier from Düsseldorf. But if I do that, uh, I'm potentially taking my life in my hands and like to live dangerously. So I've been told because so legendary is the rivalry between these two cities, Cologne and Düsseldorf. Yeah, actually, I I think not many people seem to realize that Düsseldorf is actually uh, the capital of North Rhine-Westphalia, right? Yeah, right. Uh, there's so much attention on Cologne. Some people might say it's the cooler city. Uh, sorry, Düsseldorf, um, but I'm sure I'm sure Düsseldorf is also great to visit. Well, guys, I went to the Dusseldorf Carnival in February 2020, just before the COVID lockdown, about oh, a month you, before you it. took sides. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it was a Rosenmontag parade, and I just I just wanted to get a flavor of what was going on in Western Germany, and I picked Dusseldorf. <laughs> I'll go to Cologne next time. But yeah, there were loads of floats, and it absolutely chucked it down. Loads of rain, but it was great. So many people were dressed up. They were honestly not put off by the rain at all. Everyone was really, really drunk. <laughs> I don't know how you can get drunk on Kush, but... You know, they were drinking the Dusseldorf beer. Oh, right, Dusseldorf. yeah. <laughs> right. I have to say, if you do choose to hold a carnival in February, you're probably going to expect some rain. So I guess that's kind of part of the... Uh, Part of the experience. Absolutely. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And you can check out all the links in the show notes for some of the topics and stories we've been covering today. Thank you to this week's panellists, Imogen Goodman and Aaron Burnett, as well as Katja Hoyer and sound engineer Reese Edwards. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter. Our username is Germany in Focus. And please rate us, leave a review about the podcast, tell us what you think about it on your podcast app. I'm Rachel Loxton, and we'll be back again next Friday with another episode of Germany in Focus. Until then, take care. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.